Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. In this segment, we're going to be speaking with Drura Parrish, who's CEO and founder of MakeTime which happens to be the first on-demand machining platform that provides turnkey CNC machining from qualified U.S. suppliers. It's actually a lot cooler than that, and that's why we have Drew on the show. Drew, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Drew, I wonder if you could give your explanation to our listeners of what make time is. Sure. I'd, I'd like to give the explanation uh, with a little bit of history. Um, as background. Okay. So I, I grew up in a small community in western Kentucky that was dominated by, um, you know, tool shops, uh, dye shops, et cetera. And I, I grew up in a, a small uh, family manufacturing outfit uh, that, that made tool and dyes for the HVAC industry. And so as you can imagine growing up, it was about the 70s or 80s. I'm showing you guys my age, but which I'm still young at heart. But Nonetheless, during the 70s and 80s, there was a boom-bust cycle in manufacturing. So our Sunday dinners were filled with the conversation of, well, you know, I'm going to hate letting so-and-so go, but in order to keep the company going, uh, we're going to have to do that to, to make ends meet. And so it, it left an impression on me as I, I grew up. I was the second to go to high school, the second to go to college, and I, I felt a burden uh, moving forward in my life to help ease those cycles, right? I just didn't understand why global pressures came back home to a small town in Kentucky. So went off to L.A. and uh, graduated architecture, and that's neither here nor there. Um, and when I graduated, I decided to go into um, machining, 3D printing, uh, actually, before that, and where I would go into shops and looking at supply chains, et cetera. And one day I walked into an aerospace supplier, and they had probably 15 CNC machine centers, all of which weren't, weren't doing anything. And I asked the, the shop manager, I was like, what's going on? They're just like, well, it's a slow period. And I said, how about I buy the entire month of January at cost plus a fixed percentage? And whatever projects I bring to your machine, um, you do it. Very simple, right? So I bring jobs and you guys run them. And so, you know, a lot history came together there in understanding that um, there's a lot of open capacity right, underutilized machines that lead to all kinds of cyclical problems, but there's also simultaneously buyers that need the machine times, right? And so I put mm -hmm. the two together, and then fast forward, you know, what is it now, 10 years, we've put all this on a platform that does the same thing. We take underutilized CNC equipment from across the United States and make it available to a world of buyers uh, from small, very small enterprise all the way up to very large corporations. Hmm, fascinating. Uh, really a very creative idea. Uh, well, now, how is, what's happening now that you have all of this capacity out there uh, in terms of jobs running on those machines? Uh, could you repeat that one more time? I couldn't hear you. Sure. I'm just wondering what's actually happening out there now that you've got all mm -hmm. of the capacity lined up in terms of jobs running on the machines. Yeah, so um, we... 
it's a very interesting problem. I mean, talk systemically what's happening globally. Like, I don't know if that's what you want to address or what's happening on our platform, but first I'd like to talk about what's happening across the world. Um, okay. That we're seeing why so much capacity is available. And it's very simply, it's an issue of optics, right? I, I think a very interesting set of statistics is I think that, you know, auto industry is running at about 90 plus percent capacity utilization. But also, if you look statistically, CNC machining is running at about 75% capacity utilization. So what's, okay. what's weird is that you have some of the greatest demand in the history of, like, U.S. machining, right, but also some of the, the largest deficits in capacity utilization. And what I think you underneath all of it is it's an issue of trust, right? You've got a, a post-war system of hierarchical suppliers that um, OEMs have relied on building supply chains and pushed a lot of people out of, to be frank. Um, and then that has created a group of suppliers that are waiting for home runs, uh, you know, waiting for the big contract from a you know large automaker or a large aerospace. But then simultaneously, the world is pressuring for smaller batches, like more prototyping, proto-marketing, you know, let's get uh, goods out to market, which requires a more flexible, uh, newer way of thinking in machining. And those two models don't match up, right? So you've got the hierarchical world that we came from and a very amorphic world for machining that's starting to emerge. And when those overlap, there's a mistrust, right? There, people, the supplier is not really used to dealing with a, a, a company that only wants 10 of something, although they might order 10 of something a thousand times a year, they're still waiting for the, you know, the longer engagements. And so that's where we, we step in and where we're starting to remedy this is because we are in the middle um, for the most part. And as one of our uh, buyers once said, we love the fact that there's a big green M, which is our logo, that can help establish the basis for trust between the two parties, right, to, to keep both sides honest, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you have got – you're putting – together somebody with a need with somebody that has capacity how do i as a uh, uh, manufacturer or somebody that needs a part manufactured find my uh source to have it made yeah so you you come on to make time you create an account you upload a file and then we match it to the right machine the right geography with the right material to get it done it's super simple the goal is to allow you to scale infinitely, right? So if you think about the traditional manufacturing process where you have a relationship with a supplier to make something for you, right? They're limited by how many machines they have. The difference with us, once you upload a file and you start a project on make time, you can go you know, from making 10 all the way up to 100,000. And it's our job to maintain the integrity on the supply side and make sure that the machines are at the quality and the certifications uh, necessary to complete for the industry in which you're operating. So uh, let me uh, interrupt uh, on this point. Um, I presume that you have a database of uh, manufacturers or machine companies, uh, and I presume that they have been uh, vetted and inspected and uh, you know all the ins and outs and the equipment and so on i would presume is that correct that is correct okay so now 
uh, when a client comes in and I, I need uh, I need some uh, boring work done, and I don't have the equipment, and I need a borer. So I send you the inquiry, uh, or the RFQ or RFP or whatever they call it, uh, and you do the matching. The client does not. Is that correct? Correct. And at any point, does the client uh, uh, know the the company that's going to be doing the subcontracting? No. Blind to both sides. Are they? Do they remain blind through the whole process? That's correct. Okay, so you are of sorts a middleman, and you yes. uh, project manage the entire process. That's right. Now, Drew, but, you but, lived. I just wanted to take on one other point. We're, sure. we're see, uh, you know, being that we're in such a litigious society. Uh, where is the responsibility, legal responsibility, on either the client paying their bills or uh, the machining company doing the job correct? Right. Well, that's the, the beauty of focusing trust on the middle person because we assume that, right? That's okay. A, it's a courageous role. <laughs> it, it is and it isn't. You know, that's the, the beautiful thing about manufacturing – in, in machining, in particular machine shops, it, there there is a lot of liability and there is a lot of risk. And I, I remember my, my grandfather as a child talking about the one thing that's true about most machinists is that none of them want to do a bad job, right? So remedy is pretty easy. You know, deadlines are fixed things. And what's great about our network, we have so many suppliers it, you know, if one could only produce 10 out of an order of 20, then we can quickly move it over to, you know, the remainder of the order to the next supplier to do it, right? That's why, the, you know, the onus is put on getting the best group of suppliers in the United States available so that there aren't issues. But if there are, right, we cover it, and we make sure that we make, we make our deadlines and we get the product to the people that ordered it. Can, can you hear us? This is yes, Lou? I can. Yeah. Yeah. So, Drew, a question for you. Uh, I know that we lived through and we reported on. Can you hear me, right, Tim? Yeah. Okay. We reported on something called the West Coast Port Strike, which is yes. a slowdown which mimicked a strike and kind of crippled the first quarter of, uh, uh, I think it was 2015, we lived through and uh, it happened in late 2014. You did as well. You've got a great story mm-hmm. about that. Could you share that with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, just I think one thing, and this will forever both haunt and inspire me to work harder for American manufacturers, but they just showed that, you know, one one strike, a, a group of humans, and now I'm getting a little interference. Yeah, I can hear Craig. I can hear everybody hear talking in the background. I don't know well, where that's coming from. Ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, just one story that truly resonates with me is when the strike happened, you know, an unknown uh, foreign auto manufacturer uh, had a bunch of commodity parts that were waiting to come to port, to come to Ohio, to go into assembly, into an automobile, super low cost, you know, probably a fraction of a penny. 
but because it couldn't come to port, it had to get shipped back. Then they had to get air freighted over at a cost of millions of dollars a day just to get these, you know, quote-unquote, worthless parts into the automobiles because you can't sell a $30,000 car with a, you know, one-cent part. And so that shows you the, the fragility of it, you know, the, the whole system, right? That, right. It, you know, one, one human group of humans issue at port, can't blame them. Everybody has their, you know, responsibilities and roles in this world. But ultimately, because we are so rich. Can you ask him to? Hello? I'm sorry, Drew. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so that you've got the the whole world set up as a, a very rigid supply chain. If one thing goes wrong, it's you're looking at like losses of millions of dollars for something that's not worth the material that it's cut out of. Right. right. And so that 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 inspires us. And if you look at it, all the, the capabilities and flexible manufacturing and just like in the machine base in the United States, especially specifically where we are, the I-75 corridor, you could machine the world two times over. But for in that, the example I just gave, they didn't have a supplier onboarding strategy fast enough to substantiate, you know, a, a rollout versus the millions that they were spending coming in. So what I would like to think versus like, you know, spending X millions of dollars to, to fly in parts from across the Pacific, just learn how to talk to your neighbor, you know, first, <laughs> right. right, and get and, and get them on board and find out that, hey, guess what? You know, their $250,000 machining sister system can do everything that you need them to do or like, you know, if you need it just a punch press, whatever it is, it's right down the street. So when you look at the, the macrocosm that is within the United States right now, it's just it's once again, it's a narrative of underutilization, right? And how do mm-hmm. we, as machinists, as manufacturers, not only embrace, you know, the fact that we're really good at making things, but we're also really good at understanding how to be flexible. And we're very good at understanding that the world, you know, is going to throw you curveballs, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the whole world has to stop. We just pick up. And I, I like the, the story that my great uncle uh, constantly talks about where, when America won, and, and it was that we repaired our tanks in the field versus going back to the factory to make a new tank. And that has always resonated with me, right? It's the ingenuity that I feel like we've somehow lost and the ability to look at our neighbor and to trust our neighbor to collectively machine and make the things that the world wants again. Yes, interestingly enough, the constant pressure to push cost down doesn't necessarily work when you hit an economic or a socioeconomic issue in the world at large, like the West Coast port strike. Yeah, you know, you think of like automotive, what is it, like 6 7% year-over-year reductions that they look for. You know, they level out probably every five years from some, some issue like that. But to your point, if you take like a like a much more conservative approach and also increase community building around the assembly plants that you have, I think that you'll find both the investment in the community, right, will feed back and create a more robust, you know, unbreakable system, um, mm-hmm. as well as that that investment and in workforce is only going to help you increase and, you know, or excuse me, decrease costs over time because you're going to you're going to be future forward thinking and you're going to embrace new models of thinking that strive for efficiency, technological advancement versus just making more cogs in the wheel, right, which is ultimately what global supply chains do. Sure, sure. Now, at the present time, 
uh, and I don't know if you want to disclose this, but I'll, I'll ask the question, and you decide how many manufacturers, machine shops, do you have standing behind you? So uh, we've got over 1,200 companies, and wow. the the mix is yeah the and these are companies right. So the the mix is approximately 53% dedicated buyer, or excuse me, supplier, and then 47% dedicated buyer. Okay, and I'm assuming, again, let me ask the question, and and you share with our audience the the mix. Are these all U.S.-based uh, machine shops? Yes. In the beginning, we the the furthest that we would reach out is Windsor, Ontario, but it is 100% domestic now. Okay. Well, that's great. Uh, certainly, that kind of feeds in with where we're at with manufacturing talk radio, because we're always kind of pumping. Uh, uh, jobs back to America. It sounds like you're building mm-hmm. jobs in America, which is terrific. Absolutely. Congratulations on doing that, Jura. Thank you very much. Now, um, and we certainly appreciate it. So can you share some stories with us of people who have gone through make time and, you know, give us a couple of stories on, on the success stories that you've had? Yeah, for sure. It's like it, we, we see a constant, um, it's a bookended story, right? Where, it, one that I hold very near and dear and that I'm very hopeful for uh, for the future of our country is the, the growth and the robustness of small to medium businesses, right? So, you know, there's a, a company that we work with um, as a buyer in Illinois, and they're in industrial automation. And they could have gone anywhere. They could have outsourced everywhere. They've, you know, their scale is growing imminently, but they chose – a smarter path, right? They chose instead of buying machines in their own shop to, to make the mm-hmm. things that they need to make, they invested in, in engineering and bringing, you know, a, a new workforce to the area that they were in. And then it, by displacing the cost that they would spend on the machine, they decided to outsource, but more importantly, near source it through us, right? And so what, what makes me feel glad is that you see this shift from a capital expenditure straight into salary for a group of people, right? Mm-hmm. So it right. goes goes back, and that in turn creates more jobs by us being able to give more work to suppliers that need these jobs. Critic, you know, they are critical to their survival. And so we have story after story of that, and, you know, that to us is that is our champion market, right? So, you know, companies that are under $2.5 million, you know, or in one scenario, and then companies between 2 to $5 million, that – you know, a quarter million dollar piece of equipment or a hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment, however expensive, is a make or break situation for them. But right. to enable them to think about the greatness of the product that they're making and then to be able to make it in a way that they do across multiple shops can't beat that. So I'll take that any day and I will um, forever be their champions. And then on the other side, we've got, you know, a great American automaker um, that had trouble doing R and D on some of their gear sets and nobody could make it. They were blocked out of most areas because they're younger. And the, the thing that makes me very happy that they're, they're focused more on electric vehicles that we got to pair them on the gear production on one of the nation's largest oil and gas field gear makers. And you don't get that kind of narrative anywhere, right? It's just like those two would never think to speak to each other because they're from completely different spectrums. And so right. what's great about that is is you look at a downturn in one one market, 
then you automatically can fill it up with innovation from another. And to me, that helps that whole innovation cycle again, right? So that this, this company that's used to making certain um, industrial elements for an industry that's having some trouble at the moment um, can start to train up their workforce to think about a new one and also build the community around them um, in turn. So those two stories, they're just recurring narratives, right? You've got entrepreneurs that don't have the money to, to, for a capital, capital investment to build their own shop, right? Then you've also got the, on the younger side of enterprise business, struggling to get into the global production game, right? And so what we do is we just, we are that liquid that helps make things faster, right? And helps them scale without the investment initially. Okay, now, so Drew, just another question. Have yeah. you run into the uh, kind of the out-of-the-box thinker yet who says, well, now, wait a minute. I used to have these three machines, and I could make those six things. Mm-hmm. Now I have, in essence, uh, the capacity to go to 1,200 different suppliers and make almost anything I want. So, so yes. maybe my business isn't the left-handed widget and the right-handed wing nut. Maybe it's anything I can bring in the door. Have you yep. run into that yet? Yeah, in, in specific, you see a lot of that in uh, medical devices, um, which is a, a large chunk of business for us. But um, you're seeing that once the, the production uh, box or you know typical, like say, box thinking and supply chain is pulled off of them, and once again, that upfront investment that people – like think about it. the thing that entrepreneurs are good at is coming up with stuff to make, right? But you find that once they have to commit to a certain production ideology, then that innovation starts to cease because you know your out your outbound cash is starting to go much faster. And so what Make Time does, in essence, for those people, is it liberates them to think about doing what they need to do in a product category to scale big because we take care of the, the production scale for them. Okay. Uh, just, I'm just curious because I just know somewhere in there there's another uh, a hidden success story, uh, I, I, which I'd like to have you share with our audience, something unusual that must have taken place that nobody expected, and, and you helped somebody pull through a mess. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's quite a few. I'll tell you one of my favorite industries, um, and that you, don't, you would never hear about, but... So we have a, a customer that is in um, – they produce equipment for cannabis harvesting, for example, right? Okay. Uh, from, right? Think of the trouble that they have finding a supplier. It's pretty big. Right. <laughs> but, the, but the industry is enormous, right? And, and for, you know, just depending on what side of it you are, you know, it makes jobs, and that's the way I look at it. So they had trouble finding a supplier to make you know thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of parts for their great equipment and we were able to do that right and we were able to do that because at the end of the day what we stand for is just a throughput to get the things made that need to get made you know we're not there to judge we're there to make sure that you can do it so you know and you, you go down the entrepreneurial spectrum and yes you're right there are tons of stories you know there's you know fires that go up that we put out but ultimately at the end I think uh, the most exciting part about all of this is that we're seeing a mind shift in American manufacturing 
um, and I speak from the man, uh, machining component, where people, the way we do business and think about business is changing. That we are being more flexible, we are thinking about innovation, you know, we are thinking about advancement, and that's the most exciting part about all of it. No, clearly. Do you, uh, do you find any uh, pushback from clients uh, when you quote uh, quote pricing that because it's all out in the open and it's uh, clear that uh, you're buying from uh, vendor A and you're putting some margin on those prices and uh, selling it to customer uh, B. Uh, do they have any issues about that? Well, the supplier tells us the rate that they want to do or that they that they need, right? Okay. So it's important for us that the, the machinist gets what they need to be successful, sure. right? And so, and the way we see where the, the margin's placed is like it's we provide a service. And so the, the way you commiserate that, and this is where back to business acumen, uh, things are getting very interesting, is that finally – after years and years and years and years, probably thousands of years, um, machinists are figuring out that their time is money. So the more time that they spend on going out to get quotes, right, or get jobs, the time that they spend on engineering, the time that they spend on procuring materials is worth as much as the time that they spend cutting. Because every hour that they take away from their machine center, like in terms of their operation, is an hour taken away in making cash. So our, our proposition's clear, right? It's just like we start helping to eliminate your SG&A costs, right? Your, your general administrative, all your sales, because we're in the middle. We're taking care of that. And for the buyer, it's the same thing. You know, if you're busy, like, in you know, trying to come up with the next widget while one widget's being made, the last thing you want to do is make 1,552 phone calls a day to find out where your product is. And that's what we do. And you start to think about the fully burdened cost for both sides of this equation and just chasing around things, it becomes overwhelming. I bet it does. Now, Drew, just a curiosity, um, the Internet of Things, or the, if you will, the industrial Internet of Things, do you have or yep. do you foresee make time having an eye on those machines as manufacturing takes place? So if the customer calls you and says, uh, what's happening with my order? You yeah, instantly absolutely. know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the birth of this company um, started with us tethering um, sensors to three-phase to monitor capacity, basically the on-off switch to see when machines were in use or not in use. Right. Um, but that, you know, that becomes expensive, and technology wasn't at the right point at then. <clears throat> and so, excuse me, what we focused on was building the software infrastructural package that all that could plug into later. Right. Okay. So I'm assuming then that you're going to either have or you're going to build uh, the big data uh, element uh, that you will need in order to feed information back to your customers uh, about what's happening out there and when their parts are going to be done and when they expect to receive them. And some of that's probably already in place. Is that right? Yeah. So it's very critical in our, our product cycle and the, the way that we think about that is whatever best informs both sides of the parties is best, best business for us, right? It's about education to both sides. It's about monitoring and about, you know, stakeholders knowing the, the throughput of the, the object. So, yeah, we, we definitely are. Okay. 
Uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to do two things before we close this segment, Dura. One is to give yeah. your website address so everybody knows where they can go to get this. And the second is to uh, share anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about Make Time. We do allow our guests to shamelessly plug their business and website. <laughs> Great. Well, I appreciate that. So our, our website is www.maketime, M-A-K-E-T-I-M-E dot I-O. Um, you just hop on and you can choose to be a buyer, supplier, or both if you want. You can upload a file and have quotes immediately back for your project and get running from zero to to a trillion parts in the next day. And that's what we strive to do. And uh, what I'd like to take an opportunity here is and just to convey our stance in the business is that we, we are young, we are agile, we are extremely excited for the future of manufacturing. And you will find no more committed group of individuals. We're about 52 people strong now and growing by leaps and bounds but no more committed group of people trying to bring back manufacturing to the United States, but not just bring it back, bring it back in a meaningful way that, that is future forward, that can help enable the next generation of machinists and manufacturers so that innovation in the United States can occur at the scale that it needs to and do so affordably so that there can be more of it. So it would be our pleasure to have the opportunity to, to work with anyone listening and you can ask for me personally once you get on board. Well, that's great. We've been speaking with Drew Parrish, who's CEO and founder of Make Time. Drew, thank you for being on the show. All right. Thank you very much, guys, and I wish you all the best, and all the best to those listening. And all the best to you as well. This has been a, a great opportunity to talk about a really unique platform. We encourage people to go to maketime.io if you've got a uh, either some excess capacity that you want to talk to a juror about, or you've got a part that needs to be made or a lot of parts that need to be made because there's a lot of capacity out there that he's tied into. So that uh, wraps us up for Manufacturing Talk Radio in this half hour, and we will be back with you again uh, next week on another show. But thank you for listening. Hang on, just turn the volume up. Yes, sir. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.